Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is George Selgin, a senior fellow and director emeritus of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives at the Cato Institute and professor emeritus of economics at the University of Georgia. Welcome back to Free Thoughts, George. Hey, nice to be back, Trevor. So uh, today, uh, which is April 12th, we heard that the inflation is continuing to go up, uh, 8.5% over March of last year. So uh, the first question is, is this concerning overall, or is this sort of an expected thing coming out of the recession? Oh, it's definitely uh, concerning, Trevor. Uh, the, the inflation, besides being high, it's as high as uh, it has ever been uh, since uh, for 40 years. Uh, but it's also been going on longer than many people, including folks at the Fed, had anticipated. And so it is a, it's definitely a, a concern. It's definitely a problem, I'd say. And it, uh, I'd argue that it's partly because uh, the high numbers are partly because the Fed has, uh, has fallen behind. It has not, uh, it has not acted quickly enough to, uh, to con- contain the inflation. Now, many people do point out, and I think this makes some sense, is that over the last two years, there have been a ton of sort of new economic situations or things we haven't seen before due to the pandemic. And so therefore, you have supply chain problems and you have some boost. We have very low unemployment. I think 3.6% is the official rate right now. So you have possibly a demand increase because of that. So is that is that what's really is that contributing, or how much is that contributing to the overall? Market? Well, uh, it, supply side developments are an important part of the overall picture. There's no question about it. Uh, COVID, uh, followed by uh, more recently the the war in Ukraine and the sanctions that have been put into place uh, in connection with that, have uh, have made goods, many kinds of goods, particularly um, a, a lot more scarce. And that increased scarcity naturally means that uh, their prices will go up, other things equal. So that's a big part of the story. And, and by the way, that's a part of the story that it shouldn't be the Fed's responsibility and, and really, in a sense, shouldn't be anyone's responsibility. And what I mean by that is that uh, if scarcity is behind it, higher prices are uh, something that uh, we should not condemn. The scarcity is a regrettable fact, and the high prices reflect that regrettable fact. But it doesn't. It won't. Uh, there's no way to make them go away except by producing more of the goods and services in question. And uh, under the circumstances, that's going to take some time. So some of the inflation we've seen, a lot of it, I'd say is in fact uh, based on supply limitations, and that's fine, but it isn't all based on that. Uh, There is also a demand side to the story, as you suggested. And what I mean by that is that it's not just that there are fewer goods out there to spend money on, it's also that people are spending money more than ever. There's been a very substantial uh, uptick in total spending since the COVID crisis. Spending collapsed then because of COVID and lockdowns, and p- people just started saving a lot, whether they really wanted to or not. They 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 really didn't have the 
uh, spending opportunities that they normally would have. And of course, some people also were out of work, but uh, that has changed in a big way. And we've now, for some months now, passed the point where total spending has not only caught up to where it would have been if there'd been no COVID, uh, but has surpassed that level and is still growing gangbusters. And now that is also a factor driving prices up. And it's the Fed's fault in this case. That is, it's the Fed's responsibility to prevent this. Well, that that was, yeah, that was my next question, because if there's one quote unquote famous quote about inflation, it's Milton Friedman's that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. But what you were discussing there didn't seem like a monetary policy thing. So much supply side, demand side constraints, people spending more. So how is the Fed affecting how much people are spending? Well, so uh, first uh, concerning Friedman's quote, <laughs> it was convenient at the time when we had a lot of inflation and there was need to get people's attention to the need for uh, action to constrain it uh, because the Fed was, again, uh, uh, not entirely, but largely responsible for it. But the truth of the matter is that uh, sometimes inflation is a result of greater scarcity of goods and not just people spending too much. But people are spending too much, and the Fed can regulate that. It has the power to do that, and the way it does, at least suit the, the proximate way it does, is by raising its target interest rates. Okay, what does that mean? Well, essentially, it, it makes it more... Uh, uh, under the current arrangement, it by raising interest rates, the Fed makes it more tempting for banks to hold on to uh, reserves at the Fed uh, and less tempting for them to make loans. It increases the, the, the price of credit, so the quantity of loans that people want to take out diminishes, other things equal. So the idea is that the more the Fed raises its policy rates, uh, the less spending will go on, the less borrowing, and therefore less spending. And uh, as a result, uh, spending will slow down and prices will stop rising as quickly. And ideally, they'll come back down, the rate of inflation will come back down to the Fed's long-run target of 2%. One thing you haven't mentioned being sort of popular sense, and libertarians are pretty big on saying this too, is this idea of printing money in the in the sense that what really causes inflation, and the, there's the famous examples of the Weimar Republic and Zimbabwe more recently and Venezuela, is that the government just starts printing money and doesn't really care about how much it's putting on the balance sheets. And one thing we definitely have seen since 1981, which is the last time we're talking about when inflation was this high, is a gargantuan increase in the amount of national debt. Does that matter when it comes to inflation? Yeah, the national debt does matter. Uh, what happens is this. Uh, the, uh, the more the government borrows, of course, uh, the greater the interest burden, other things equal, that, uh, that it faces. Of course, a lot of the borrowing that's gone on recently was while interest rates and inflation were still very, very low. But as inflation worsens, uh, and particularly as the Fed responds to it by raising interest rates, then the 
interest burden on the debt also goes up. And, you know, when, when we're talking about interest rates rising one or two percentage points today, uh, we're talking about a very big increase from where, where they were uh, percentage-wise. And so all of this means that uh, the fiscal situation becomes more difficult with so much debt outstanding and interest rates on the debt rising. By the way, uh, the way the Fed operates today is uh, by regulating the interest it pays banks on their reserves, as I mentioned before. And uh, that uh, that really is like interest being paid on the government debt because uh, a lot of the reserves in question are backed by government securities or they're backed by agency securities, which are the next closest thing. So, so really when the Fed raises its policy rates, uh, it's directly increasing the amount of interest the government is having to pay out, uh, in this case, to banks rather than to other persons, but it also ends up paying out more to everybody. Okay, what does this have to do with controlling inflation? Well, uh, the argument is that the because raising interest rates in these conditions can pose a great burden on the Treasury, uh, the Fed can be placed under a lot of pressure to resist raising rates. And uh, there are s situations in which uh, the, the government is able to exert enough pressure to get the Fed to uh, uh, not do its job and not raise interest rates enough to control inflation. And then, hey, presto, the, the inflation raises the debt burden. The interest rates rising raise the debt burden. But if interest rates stay low and prices rise, it actually erodes the amount of the real value of the government's outstanding debt. There's a motive for the government to want to see its real debt eroded through inflation. And so uh, uh, that's that's a way it, it pays off the debt by giving, getting everybody else to bear the, the burden <laughs> through higher prices. And that's the sort of thing that happened in hyperinflations like the Weimar hyperinflation. It was uh, partly and largely in a, 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 a way for the government to, to pay its debts without really paying them to get rid of its debts. So uh, we're, we're not there yet, but it is disturbing to think that we have uh, a higher ratio of debt to GDP uh, than we've had uh, since uh, the Second World War. And uh, the higher that ratio is, the more you start to worry about this kind of fiscal dominance scenario, fiscal dominance of monetary policy scenario, as it's called. But clarify that. You mean that the monetary policy is being run by the fiscal policy as opposed to vice versa? That, that the fiscal authorities are, uh, as it were, uh, calling the shots or at least uh, putting pressure on the Fed to uh, modify its, uh, its monetary stance with the treasury's needs in mind instead of with its proper mandates in mind. So does that come from, because it does seem somewhat shocking, I think to even casual observers, definitely to libertarians, but it seems that particularly the Democrats can't stop proposing more spending bills. And does that would that be the kind of fiscal pressure that would be exerted, like $4 trillion for infrastructure and $1.5 trillion for stimulus? And that there's they seem to think there's no feasible limit on how high the debt can go, or at least they're not approaching it. And, and then 
if they did pass, let's say a $4 trillion infrastructure bill, that new money that was needed by treasury would put the pressure on the fed to find that money somewhere and make it cheaper for the government to have that debt. Yes. Well, it's not, you know, uh, I guess you could put it, uh, you could put it in terms of the fed finding the money, but uh, really what's going on with is this, and, and here's where I think a, a lot of the MMT rhetoric is highly misleading, modern, modern monetary theory rhetoric. Which basically says debt doesn't matter if it's not denominated in your own currency, correct? Yes, uh, and that uh, governments need, need never worry about how they're going to pay for whatever it is they're uh, doing. And uh, in a sense, that's true. Uh, governments... Uh, to the extent that they issue fiat currency, independent fiat currency, floating paper money, it's not tied to anything, uh, uh, they can, in principle, print as much as they want to to pay any debts denominated or expenses denominated in that currency as they want to incur. That's true. But it doesn't follow (laughs) that they can do it with impunity without causing problems. And ultimately, when you're particularly uh, in a, uh, when you're in a situation like we are today, where arguably we're quite close to full employment, if not there, indeed we have uh, uh, more job vacancies than uh, people out of work right now, uh, which is a quite unusual, by the way. <laughs> but anyway, it's a situation that doesn't suggest that there's a great deal of slack in the economy, and therefore, whatever resources are going into uh, government projects—I mean, real resources. They have to come from somewhere, and there's two places that they can come from, or three. One is taxing people, obviously. Uh, the other is borrowing more, but if you're borrowing more and, and the Fed isn't <laughs> helping out, that means higher interest rates, and that's the non-inflationary version of borrowing. The third option is the Fed does help out by letting inflation uh, get loose, by letting uh, goods become more and more expensive. In in that case, of course, uh, the price is paid uh, not by uh, in the form of higher interest rates, but in the form of uh, a reduction in consumption by uh, the general public. That is, we we're, we all are implicitly being taxed by inflation instead of uh, uh, normal taxes. So those are the options. And the mon- modern monetary theorists, uh, you know, they they. <laughs> They wave these issues away on page one, and then they bring them up on page three. And in that way, they can uh, promise people to have the moon on one page and then deny that they're saying anything irresponsible or incorrect by pointing to the other page that is like the footnote (laughs) or the fine print. Uh, But the fine print on modern, modern monetary theory essentially says that the principal claims it makes uh, shouldn't be taken too seriously. That's what it says. They're often, I know, even within the econ profession, considered pretty fringe, these sort of famous modern monetary theorists. But it seems to me that one place where they might have kind of come from is the fact that for some people, libertarians especially, there's been a lot of banging the drum of inflation for 40 years. And we've had basically 2%. And we said, well, look, I remember when we hit a billion dollars in debt. It was about 86 or so, I think. And, you know, now we're 30 trillion. And so we had 2% inflation with that just unbelievable gain in debt. And if you go to the Cato basement with all these old books that we have, 
I could pull out a half dozens of libertarian predictions of financial collapse in 1989 or 1994 or something like that. So the maybe the, the inflation hawks were overplaying their hand too much in the last 40 years. Yes? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The reason we have modern monetary theorists and the reason that their arguments are, are uh, at least half plausible is because we have both monetary hawks and deficit hawks who have, in some cases, grotesquely exaggerated the uh, risks involved in either uh, deficit spending and, uh, uh, or money creation, who have uh, been uh, a crying wolf every time the Fed engages in expansionary monetary policy, even when it only serves to avoid unemployment and deflation, um, and who have argued that uh, deficit spending is is always a bad thing, and even that we can't possibly sustain large deficits for a long time under any circumstances. And all of these wrong arguments, which it, it should be said, are usually not arguments of professional economists. And there, I think the modern monetary theorists have been very misleading. They're taking pop uh, arguments, maybe I should say popular arguments, mostly enunciated by uh, lay people, including prominent government officials, and they're treating them as representing orthodox economic theory, and that's absolutely not true. Uh, so the reality and what's recognized by most economists uh, is that Yes, uh, monetary expansion can be perfectly non-inflationary and perfectly desirable under many circumstances, usually a little bit is desirable, and, uh, and uh, deficits are perfectly uh, uh, reasonable under many circumstances, and a per perpetual government debt we know very well is, uh, uh, is something that's sustainable. So uh, pox on both extreme views, I say. Uh, the monetary mo modern monetary theorists want to push the pendulum all the way in one direction, and the hawks want to push it in another. The truth is somewhere in between. What changed then? We have we talked about the the pandemic and these unique economic circumstances, but what did the Fed do right for forty years that it is not doing right anymore? Uh, well. Um, some people will say the Fed was pretty lucky. It wasn't, in, in, it didn't encounter many uh, serious crises and shocks for a long period. Uh, but we should remember that before we were worrying about inflation, as we have been only for you know a couple of years, uh, we were worrying and complaining that the Fed wasn't keeping the inflation rate high enough. The Fed was struggling to get it high. So in retrospect, we can say, well, see, the Fed did a good job controlling inflation after 2008, during and after for uh, a long stretch of time. But for almost all of that time, or certainly for most of it, um, uh, the, the, the inflation numbers were coming in too low. The Fed really couldn't, therefore, claim that it was responsible for the inflation, that it, was, that it had a handle on it. Rather, uh, it seemed to be incapable of getting inflation where it really wanted it to be. So we shouldn't exaggerate the Fed's success post-2008 uh, and pre-COVID. Uh, it was struggling then as well. Now, uh, why the Fed has had a hard time, 
uh, since uh, 2000, starting in 2007 and 8 and, and until today. Controlling inflation is a good question. There are many different uh, explanations involved. Uh, the, the lack of inflation or low inflation, uh, I think, was mostly because interest rates were so low. This is the popular explanation. When market interest rates are very low or when the so-called natural rate of interest, which is the rate you want, you need to keep inflation at 2%, to, uh, is negative, which it seems to have been for a while, the Fed can't necessarily get it, its own policy rates down there for legal and other reasons. So this is regarded as a very important cause of uh, 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 below target inflation. Now, of course, the situation is quite different. There's no lack of, uh, there's no material reason why the Fed couldn't have raised interest rates sooner uh, and more to keep inflation where from exceeding 2%, uh, or at least exceeding uh, 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 a much higher number. But uh, I think in the later, in this later uh, uh, a mistake, mistake making, <laughs> the culprit is more the, the new inflation targeting strategy that the Fed adopted uh, uh, not long before everything went haywire. It adopted what it calls average inflation targeting or flexible average inflation targeting, and that that qualifier flexible is already pointing to part of the problem because the framework was one that was so flexible that no one actually understood what it meant and what the Fed would be up to. So credibility in, in this new framework was sort of lacking from the get-go. But the other thing that happened, and this I think is uh, even more important, is when COVID struck, Fed officials made pronouncements, which they should never do, about uh, the likelihood that they would leave interest rates near zero for an extended period of time. And they talked about how it was unlikely they'd raise rates or start raising them till 2023. Is that Was that unique in terms of, like in the past, it had been very rare for them to say, this is what to expect? No, they made this mistake. It's 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 frustrating because they've screwed this up a million times. It was like Alan Greenspan before the big crisis of 2007 and eight uh, said, we're going to keep inflation. We're going to keep interest rates low. We're going to keep them low. Those commitments uh, trap the Fed in the following sense. The Fed does not like to uh, hurt its credibility or hurt it further by saying it's going to do X and ending up doing Y. So whenever the Fed makes a specific promise, in this case, not a promise that's very specific, but specific enough to give people pretty, you know, expectations. Okay, the interest rates are going to stay way down at zero for some time, until sometime in 2023. And then conditions emerge where it starts to become clearer and clearer that the interest rates need to go up way before then the Fed is caught in a trap and it says, oh, well, you know, <laughs> we really want to keep our promises. So what do we do? Do we sacrifice a little more credibility or do we break up? Do we uh, um, uh, uh, stick by hook or by crypto or promise no matter what? 
And what often happens, and what I think has happened in this case, is they do a little bit of both. They compromise. They are raising rates now, as we know. They're probably going to now end up raising them even more dramatically than they had planned because of the numbers that are coming out. But they didn't start raising them when I think they ought to have. And so between the Fed's, uh, between the Fed's imprudent uh, uh, forecasts of what it was planning to do and an inflation targeting framework that's vaguely specified that says, well, we can allow inflation to go up sometimes uh, to make up for past low numbers, but then eventually we'll get it right where the eventually is never specified. Between these things, you had a, a kind of perfect setup for the Fed to fall behind the curve. And, uh, and, uh, and I say that, um, you know, I, it, it's easy to be a, a Monday morning quarterback when the, if you, if it, it, and it's unfair to be one, if you could look back at the statistics and say, well, how were they to know? But you can look back at the statistics in this case and say, yes, they should have known. Because the inflation, not only were the inflation numbers going up for a long time, that's clear, but also you can look at spending data. We were talking about how what really matters for the Fed is whether spending is uh, 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 growing too rapidly. And that uh, the, the, the statistics suggested that that was true as well. That is, they suggested it sometime last year by, by late August, uh, sorry, by, by the autumn, certainly by the autumn. You could look at the numbers that had come out, and assuming they were all reliable, you could say, okay, uh, by most reasonable estimates of what the pre-COVID trend in spending was, and let's assume that would have been, you know, staying there would have been fine, uh, uh, roughly consistent with the Fed's inflation target, and I believe it was, uh, then uh, we've caught up. We're there. It's time now to not let spending grow too much more. And I argued this, I was arguing this uh, last fall, others were arguing it last fall. So it wasn't as if we were only realizing now and saying, oh, the Fed shoulda, coulda, whatever. No, we were saying it then. And uh, and the Fed didn't, of course, uh, start tightening or raising rates. And, uh, and of course, the higher inflation goes, this is an important point, tightening monetary policy, Trevor, is, is really about making real inflation-adjusted interest rates go up, right? Because the, the 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 interest rates people are paying that matter that determine you know uh, how tight credit is are the ones that are adjusted for expected inflation. Yeah, right? just to so, clarify for so that means if you got an interest rate of three percent, but inflation is four percent, you've got a negative interest rate, so that's a pretty good deal. Yeah, even though it's three percent. Whereas if you had an interest rate of two percent with zero inflation, that wouldn't be such a good deal. Okay, exactly. So as inflation worsens. Right, the amount of interest rate increases, the extent of to, to which you have to increase the, the in nominal interest rates, non-adjusted interest rates, in order to discourage borrowing, in order to get spending down, goes up as well. So the more this thing <laughs> gets away from the Fed, the more dramatic its tightening in nominal terms has to be, and we don't want to go there because we don't want to see double-digit interest rates or anything like it. So. Um, so it was important that the Fed act quickly. This is always the, the true. You always, if inflation is getting out of line, 
the sooner central banks correct it, the less drastic action they have to take. So you don't end up in a Paul Volcker type situation like that of the early 1980s, where the inflation rate, of course, gotten very high. And he put the brakes on very, very uh, <laughs> drastically. It was like stomping on them. And the economy came to a screeching halt. That's not something. Yeah, I think my, parent, my parents bought their house in 1979 yeah. and the interest rate was 17%. That's right. It started in the late 70s and continued. And the real the collapse of the economy was in the early 80s. So we certainly don't want to go there. In fact, if the, I believe... And this goes against what a lot of people are. A lot of people out there are saying, oh, we don't, you know, if the Fed does something about inflation, it's going to hurt a lot of people. It's going to throw people out of work. I don't believe this is true if the Fed acts early and prudently, doesn't let things fall far behind. Now, usually you'd expect that some people's jobs might be at stake. Um, but we have to remember here, first of all, we're only talking about slowing down the rate of spending, not not making it shrink. And we're not even talking about making it not grow anymore, just grow at a slower rate. Second, uh, we're not talking about the Fed trying to get inflation all the way down to 2%. You only want to eliminate the component of inflation that isn't driven by the supply side factors we talked about earlier. So we're talking about knocking it down a couple of percentage points. Finally, most importantly, I think, are all those job vacancies. The unusual situation today where in, in, the problem isn't workers who can't get jobs, but employers who can't get workers. And, and when you have a lot of vacancies, the first thing that clamping down on spending does is to reduce the employer's capacity to hire, which means there'll be fewer vacancies, but it has to go down more and more until there are no vacancies or few vacancies before employment actually starts to suffer, before you start seeing anybody get fired. Now, that's probably a bit of an exaggeration because we're talking about in general. There are some places where there aren't labor shortages and there aren't vacancies and there are some firms that are teetering, tottering, where a little less demand could mean the difference between some of the workers staying employed and not. So, yeah, some people might, workers might be affected by any attempt to reduce inflation. But of course, if the argument is we should never do that, if anyone might lose a job anywhere, then that's a recipe for letting inflation just completely get out of control and never trying to stop it. And that ends badly. That ends with, that ends up most importantly, perhaps, given the argument, it, it, that kind of policy almost inevitably ends up uh, leading to such a complete collapse that unemployment goes way up in the end. <laughs> you, you avoid a little bit at, in the beginning and you end up with a lot of it at the end. So we, you don't want to go there. That situation in the 70s is referred to as stagflation. And it, I knew that the, the – see if I remember here, I'm not an economist – Something about the relationship between employment rates, unemployment rates, and inflation was thought to be impossible, except for this period of time. And so, what did the what did the Fed screw up in the seventies? Are they doing the same thing today that they screwed up in the seventies? Well, we're not there yet, and no, they're not. Um, what happened in the seventies was uh, uh, really a consequence, in part. There, there's a lot to what the inflation. We have to talk about OPEC and there was, that's the supply side part of the story again. But, but um, the, 
the 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 Fed's mistake dates back to uh, the beginning of the 60s. At that time, uh, a, a, a particular idea took hold, which is the Phillips curve idea in its first and most infamous guise. Um, it was uh, an idea that was uh, promoted by uh, certain uh, Keynesian economists, though it should be said that there's nothing, this, this thing, this idea doesn't exist in Keynes himself. He might have disavowed it for all, uh, for all anyone knows. But they believed they had uncovered an empirical relationship showing that the higher the inflation rate gets, the lower the unemployment rate gets. And if you look at the data for the U.S. in the 60s, 60, 61, 2, 3, 4, 5, right up to 69, holy moly, traces out a lovely Phillips curve, just like the theory says. Well, you can imagine that uh, armed with the theory and noticing where these data points are landing, people believed it. More importantly, I mean, they should believe that there was a, that there was a relationship, sure enough, but they also believed that it was something they could continue exploiting and it would stay fit, stay put, right? That things wouldn't change. But then what happened was it turned out that um, as the inflation rate rose, first the employment benefits started to get lower and lower. The unemployment rate didn't continue to fall very much. And then lo and behold, as inflation rates got really high in the 70s, early 70s, uh, the, the data points started and <laughs> Uh, landing, uh, moving in the wrong direction and on the employment scale. So the inflation rate kept going up, but now employment was starting to go, unemployment was starting to going up again. And by the later 70s, you ended up with a double-digit inflation and employ unemployment that was higher than when you started in the 60s. So the Phillips curve, in other word, words, had fallen apart or uh, in a, as a more more sophisticated way of putting it, is the darn thing shifted, and it shifted because in the labor market, workers cottoned on to the, the fact that you know they were they were responding to higher wage rates, higher wage offers, by offering more employment, but then uh, those offers started to not look so good because their higher wage rates were fully compensated by and perhaps even exceeded by the rise in the cost of living. So they started saying, okay, you need to pay us even more. Well, if you pursue that logic, if you think about where it ultimately leads, it leads you right back to where you would have been if you had no inflation increase at all, with the unemployment rate kind of being stubbornly indifferent to the total amount of inflation. The only thing changing is if the inflation rate's higher, the workers say, okay, I want my wages to go up that much faster as well. And everything cancels. And so that's where things were going, except it didn't stop with that, you know, return to where you started. It went, it got worse. And it got worse because at a certain point, the Volcker, right, says, okay, we're going to, we're really going to stop inflation. Now they've been promising to do this a long time, but he said, we're going to stop it. And he meant it. But workers' expectations didn't change. They're saying, oh, this thing's been going up forever. It's going to keep going up, and we're going to get our cost of living increases by hook or by crook. And so now the labor market wage rate demands are racing ahead faster than the equilibrium price level because the Fed is putting on the brakes. 
what happens then? People get tossed out of work because the, 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 the earnings just aren't there to support the wage demands. And that was this, that was the stagflation. It's a complete, it's great. You know, it's an Elizabethan tragedy, right? You start out and thinking, you know, we're going to, we're going to exploit this trade off by, uh, we know inflation's costly. Everybody admitted that, but look, you know, uh, getting a few more people employed, that's worth a considerable increase in the rate of change of prices. So let's do it. And they did it and they did it until they ended up with the worst of both worlds. And so nobody wants to go there again. We're not closed. So we're doing better now. We're doing well, better yeah, than that. Because, you know, we have that experience behind us. Nobody at the Fed, uh, I don't think anybody at the Fed is thinking, well, if we just increase the inflation rate more, the unemployment rate will keep going down. Nobody's talking that way. The Phillips curve still exists in people's heads anyway, and it still leads to some stupid policies. But it is not quite, uh, the misunderstanding is not quite as gross as, as in retrospect it appears to have been back in the 60s. So I don't think anybody is uh, about to say, oh, there's nothing wrong with letting the inflation rate keep on creeping up because we can expect the unemployment rate to keep on going down. Now, there is some talk like that. You still have, uh, again, modern monetary theorists trying to argue that um, even at its very low rate now, or where it was before COVID, the unemployment rate is still was still way above where it could be. They they believed you could get way below 3.9 or 3, you know 3.6 whatever percent, and uh, and 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 so you had the argument that says, uh, and the Fed bought into this a little bit. You know, we'll keep on. We won't eat. We won't tighten until we actually uh, see um, the uh, um, the inflation rate get up very high. We won't assume any particular value of unemployment where if we go below, inflation is going to go up, which is the, how they used to think. Uh, and that, but that strategy is also dangerous because by the time you see, <laughs> you know, the whites of the inflation's eyes. Uh, so to speak, you 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 can fall behind the curve, but uh, the bottom line is that um, uh, we no longer believe that there's any lasting unemployment inflation trade-off. Fed officials don't believe it, so they're not inclined to try to excuse. Uh, high inflation by claiming that it's buying us a considerably lower unemployment rate. Uh, that doesn't mean they they uh, take adequate steps to keep inflation where it ought to be, but they're less likely to let it run away. I want to ask about something. You mentioned this a couple times with inflation being too low, and I know this goes directly to a lot of your work. Why do we accept inflation as a fact of life? It seems odd to me that we just sort of accept that prices will be higher 40 years from now than they are today. Uh, you know, you could buy a 10 cent paperback book in 1955 or 1975, and it just seems this odd thing that we'd say, what is what is too low inflation? Why do we have any of it? Uh, no, I, I mean, I agree with that. Of course, I, I, uh, uh, I've been in our discussion, I've just been taking for granted that, okay, 2% is what the officials want. So let's just accept that and talk about why it's higher or lower. But in fact, 
the current situation where 2% uh, inflation is regarded as normal isn't terribly normal. Uh, in a normal, and what I and you and I both consider something more normal would be a situation where as costs of production, unit costs of production of stuff, uh, unit costs of, of producing things fall, which they tend to do outside of wars and other uh, crises, uh, then the, the long run uh, result that seems natural to us <laughs> is that prices would fall to, to prices fall <laughs> falling unit costs. And back in 1997, as, as you know, uh, but some of your listeners might not, I, I wrote a book called uh, Less Than Zero, The Case for a Falling Price Level in a Growing Economy that, that argued this point, not for the first time, but for some time. <laughs> Nobody else had been arguing it. And, um, and what I said there is that, you know what, it is, imp it is, it is desirable that certain prices shouldn't have to fall uh, regularly or even at all. Uh, a notorious case being uh, the price of uh, low-skilled labor, hourly wage rates, uh, to put it in more concrete terms, uh, because nobody likes to take a pay cut. <laughs> that doesn't mean workers' uh, wages have to rise, though, and um, uh, wage rates. And it doesn't mean that they don't get any richer, because if the prices of goods are going down the way we want them to, of course, the real wages are going up, even if the money wages don't. But uh, so I, I, in that pamphlet and elsewhere, I argued that really, if we want to sound monetary policy, we should have a policy that worries more about avoiding wage rate deflation than about price deflation. And that would be a overall uh, deflationary a policy uh, that is it would allow the consumer price index to cr gently fall over time with occasional uh, spikes when there's a crisis of war or whatever um but no one does this no country does uh, nobody this. does it anymore nobody with the last deflation we had i think was sometime around in the early 1950s we had a year where the price level fell well, I, I think they might have made a very slight one in 2008 very very slight but is that is this for political reasons and the fiscal no, no, policy not entirely, no. monetary policy? I wouldn't say so. I, I think what happened was after the high, after the 1980s, of course, we learned after the inflation of the 70s. I mean, in early in the crisis of the early 80s, we we learned that we didn't have to want to have very high inflation rates, but we didn't quite get the inflation bug out of our system. Instead, there was a debate. There were people arguing that zero inflation or a constant price level was ideal. They tended to be monetarists in the long run, constant price level. But the Keynesians uh, were, to, to, to lump them all together with that label, they, they, they felt that uh, getting all the way back down to zero was going to have, at very least, very high transition costs. That We didn't want to have any more Volcker-type crises just for the sake of getting inflation down from 5% to zero percent. I see the two percent ideal that came out of that era as just basically a compromise between the people who wanted to go down all the way to zero and the people who didn't want to go down at all because they thought it would be too costly. And this two percent number started out as just a, you know, a very pragmatic uh, thing without 
any substantial uh, theoretical basis at all. And of course, I was arguing for a less than zero long run in inflation rate uh, on the basis of the fact that if there was any theory for any rate, that one made more sense than either of the others. <laughs> and the others that there was really never anything solid. Pulling a number the, out of the a hat is not were a, is all not a completely good, yeah. the, the argument for 2%, for 5%, for 0%, completely ad hoc, completely ad hoc. And uh, anyway, uh, of course, 2% won out. And over time, it, instead of being perceived as a just a kind of compromise, uh, a pragmatic compromise, it started to acquire a kind of the... Uh, <laughs> A kind of the, um, this is the natural state of affairs. Yeah, this is how it, it must be. be perceived as natural, perfect, sensible. And as you know, uh, more recently now, you have more people arguing that uh, we should go up from two percent to three or even four percent as a as a safer long run inflation rate. And this is partly driven by the fact that in real interest rates have fallen secularly, and we don't want to get us themselves back into a zero lower bound problem like we had after 2008 where you you were in where whatever you think the inflation you couldn't lower you, you, you couldn't actually fix it yeah, yeah you can't fix it anyway so um now this all ties in to nominal gdp targeting which i know you were getting to so but yeah because the next question is, so what should the fed be yeah. doing and that's how we that's yeah. why i set you up george yeah. So uh, what I was arguing in that pamphlet was a form of nominal GDP targeting, actually, uh, where the this, uh, nominal GDP, I should explain, I think most people know GDP is a measure of the economy's real output, uh, usually annual. The nominal GDP is the dollar value of the output, and real GDP is when you deflate to account for inflation. So you're trying to get a handle on how much real output of the out output of real goods and services is growing. All right. Um, not stabilize, the argument that I made was one for stabilizing nominal GDP, which is a spending measure. Just keep spending growing at a stable rate. And uh, to harken back to an earlier part of our conversation, the idea here is that nominal spending, that's the thing the Fed needs to control not the price level, because the price level is uh, a function, or maybe I should say the inflation rate is a function of two things, how much people spend and, and how scarce goods are because more or fewer of them are being produced. The Fed shouldn't be concerned about preventing the latter kind of inflation rate changes, the kind that come from supply side factors. It should only be concerned with not contributing to inflation or deflation by letting the flow of spending grow too rapidly or shrink. So, let it stabilize a measure of the flow of spending and just leave the price level out of it, right? The price level will do its thing given that spending is stable and whatever it does is presumably reflecting changes in underlying scarcity of goods and services, so fine. So let's stabilize NGDP. Well, uh, now, uh, since I wrote that pamphlet, it's a bunch of people who have uh, taken up the same argument, not necessarily... Uh, um, because I wrote about it, but independently, most, fam most famously Scott Sumner, of course, but David Beckworth, who I can claim to have made uh, 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 familiar with the argument, uh, and a bunch of others. And uh, we're all still out here <laughs> trying to uh, plead for that. One of the subtle ways in which nominal GDP targeting would help is it actually is an alternative to raising the long-run interest rate 
uh, target nominal interest rate if you're worried about hitting the zero lower bound. And the reason for that is this. We're the spending target, right? Um, well, let me step back. The most when when the natural real rate of interest falls, it's usually because output isn't growing as fast. The rate of growth of output, particularly the productivity growth rate, is an is a major determinant of where uh, the natural interest rates go. Well, under an NGB targeting scheme, the uh, uh, when you're targeting spending, you're naturally going to let the inflation rate rise uh, uh, when output growth shrinks. So at those times when there's the biggest threat of real interest rates being low, when with a fixed inflation target, you were more likely to approach the zero lower bound. With a fixed NGDP growth target, that doesn't happen because you automatically are allowing a higher inflation rate and keeping the interest rate from falling that much. But, and this is where this targeting is better than just letting the inflation rate go to three or 4%, it doesn't call for higher inflation when real output growth is uh, moving, is, uh, is, is robust. In that case, prices might even, the inflation rate might even go down, uh, but there's no danger of the, the, the zero lower bound because uh, real output is growing rapidly, so the real interest rates are high. Bottom line, you get the sort of the people who are arguing let's have four percent inflation to avoid hitting bottom once in a while it's like saying let's make the river uh you know uh let's let's uh, get the dredges in there and and dig so that our boat won't the keel won't hit the bottom as often what you're doing with an ngdp target is you're having the the the, the as it were the height of the river rise just when there's an obstruction below to compensate and you you end up avoiding the problem of the keel hitting just as well with a lower inflation rate on average and therefore it's a superior policy so what should people be watching uh to because there's you know increasing fears and you know could there be some political consequences probably for this what should people be watching and and maybe even doing uh, with this sort of uncertain inflation environment going forward? Should we be hoarding gold? Should we be buying crypto like crazy? Uh, should we just sort of maybe be optimistic? Yeah, I, I don't, I, I mean, I, I won't, I'm going to steer clear of giving investment advice uh, uh, because uh, I don't claim to be any good at that. But I, I think what the most useful thing people can do, they're already starting to do, which is complain about inflation. Complain about it so that people understand that uh, this is this isn't something per people perceive to be no big deal. Uh, there are a lot of people out there who would like the monetary authorities to believe, uh, and like would like government officials uh, to believe that the American public uh, isn't that concerned about inflation. It only is concerned about jobs, jobs, jobs. But I, I don't think that is, in fact, the way many people think, including people, you know, workers of all kinds. But but that but they have to make that clear. Um, and they should be looking out for what the Fed does in the coming months. They should want it to raise and keep on raising interest rates, not uh, dramatically, but, uh, you know, uh, with uh, with a clear determination that they shouldn't be too low. Um but um, if I could get them to do so, and of course this only really applies to a few people, I would have people uh, pay more attention to uh, what's happening to spending 
as being really much more fundamentally important than what's happening to prices. Prices may need to keep going up. Uh, the war is certainly a factor. Sanctions are a factor. And we're not going to make scarcity any. Uh, uh, we're not going to do away with the problems of increased scarcity that these events uh, uh, involve. We're not going to make it go away. And we should face the reality that if prices go up only enough to reflect that fact, that that is not the fault of the Federal Reserve. However, we should absolutely want to not to throw you know, fuel on the fire by failing to raise interest rates enough to keep a lid on spending. Spending needs to grow. Spending needs to grow, but it mustn't grow too much. That doesn't make anyone better off. It just means prices grow up that much faster and they start getting wage and factor price inflation. And uh, besides the fact that these things ultimately cancel out and don't make anybody better off, they can be the basis for uh, asset market booms and bubbles that are unsustainable and, 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 uh, and ultimately uh, people end up worse off. We don't need any more financial crises. We don't need the Fed creating a situation where those crises are more likely. And that's what uh, too much spending often tends to do. You look at every big financial crash in the past and you look at spending growth and GDP and you'll see it's very high before the crash. Then, of course, it collapses <laughs> and uh, both things are very bad. So we don't want to go there again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.